Hello, Marvelites! You're listening to This Week in Marvel, episode number 443. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Lorraine Zink. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you are just joining us on This Week in Marvel, we're going to talk about some stuff that's happening at Marvel this week, whether it's games or comics, movies, toys, the internet, or wherever uh, we want to talk about. All right, so let's uh, let's kick things off with this big boy because Sony announced this week that there's an official title for the next Venom movie, and it is Venom, Let There Be Carnage. And the studio also gave it a release date of June 25th, 2021, which, Lorraine, 2021 is maybe potentially lining up to be the greatest year for Marvel movies in the history of forever. Yeah, no, I mean, the whole year itself is going to be crazy stacked. I also want to call out that this week of Marvel did a really awesome talk about Absolute Carnage over uh, about almost a year ago, or a little less than a year ago, I think in July. So if you guys want to go back into the This Week in Marvel uh, annals, and if you want to re-up on your carnage-ness, there is carnage available to you. Carnage, 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 carnage. It makes you sound like Sean Connery. <laughs> carnage. Also this week, of course, was the NFL Draft, and there's a cool article that my Marvel's Pullist co-host Tucker Marcus put together. It is a little feature that is about some like Marvel and ESPN partnership that reimagined comic book covers for an NFL Draft. And um, we've been working with ESPN for years and, and had some fun stuff with them, whether it's like the body issue. Mm-hmm. And so we did some really cool covers with like... Jalen Hurts as Thor or um, a whole bunch of other characters, you know, and that one is cool because... I I was going to say, I love the Secret Wars one because it's like the classic Spidey black suit first appearance cover, but then it's got like a football player in that exact pose. They're really fun because it's like almost, not quite a parody, more a pastiche of the covers. So it really gives you the full cover, but like with a new twist. They're really, really adorable and fun. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of them like referencing Invincible Iron Man and Captain America 109. There's Black Panther number one. Like there's a whole bunch of these. You can find the whole set of them on Marvel.com. We'll make sure there's a link for you to check them out. Um, But I love it when we do these kinds of like crossover little uh, sports and comics things. Even though I'm not the hugest sports person, I find these really neat. Yeah, same. I can appreciate a sport. It's a lot like a superhero, but without a storyline. Just kidding. They all have storylines. That's what I've learned. Sports have (laughs) storylines. You just have to, like, understand sports to follow them. So that's my Oh, my gosh. You're like, they won a game, and then they were sad, and then they got beat by this other team. Oh, man, what a sad. My main experience with sports is the Mets, so (laughs) there's a lot of sad. Uh, we actually had a great tweet in here from Kyle the Lucky Rabbit, aka at Heck in Corgo, who tweeted to us one of my favorite comics as a Marvel and Beatles fan. And he posted a picture of Strange Tales number 130, classic issue, um, which had two stories in it. One of those Doctor Strange story. The other one is when Human Torch and the Thing meet the <laughs> Beatles. And Kyle continues, he says, I mean, they meet the Beatles. And this issue is so fun. It is a classic issue. It is on Marvel Unlimited. You can read it if you've never read it. The cover is great because Torch and Thing are drawn with like Beatles haircuts on the cover. unsettling, to be honest, but it's really, really delightful. (laughs) I love it. I also want to say it's not Johnny Storm. It's Human Torch. So he has got a red fire face with hair that is not a flame. Discuss. Oh, it is magnificent. <laughs> the story is so great because it's like Ben and Johnny are going to take their gals on a date. And the gals, it's I believe at, at this time, it's Dory who Johnny's dating. And of course, it's Alicia. They're like out shopping and they like see a poster for the Beatles. And it's like, oh, my gosh, the Beatles are in town. And then the Beatles just happen to walk by like five times in the issue. They run past them uh, and the girls really want to see the Beatles and the guys try to bring them there and they get into hijinks. And at the end, they're like, ah, they'll they'll figure it out. Let's go get a bite to eat. It's a really sweet, fun, romantic adventure story. <laughs> oh, it's so cute. Yeah. I love it. Also, I just love that you would run by the Beatles that many times. Uh, yeah, I mean... Of course. What year would that have been? That would have been like 63, 64. They were still like, they were on the upswing. It's not like they had reached that apex quite yet. 
maybe not as many girls crying in the front row. Just a few girls, not all. Well, I mean, the they were drawn with a lot of. There are a lot of like kids and girls freaking out in that issue. It's fantastic. <laughs> There's a another thing. You know, we were talking about Marvel Unlimited, which is of course our subscription service. The the new Dawn of X series are starting to hit into Marvel Unlimited, and we have a cool story on Marvel.com, which is a cool article of like, "Welcome to the Dawn of X," explaining what you need to know to jump into these books. So of course, there's House of X and Powers of Ten. It gives you a sense of who the creative team is. It's some things to know as you like see the characters who are showing up, like who's Doctor Moira McTaggart, who's Professor X, who's Magneto, what is Krakoa, all these different things, which you know maybe you know. Maybe you don't. And this is um, really helpful. There's also the Krakoan language translator, which Lorraine, I think I've shown it to you. I've shown it to like my wife as well. I have it on mm. my phone at all times. This, this <laughs> graph. So like when I'm reading an issue of one of these X-Men books on the subway, if I'm or, or if I'm out or something, wherever, I can always translate the, the language. Can I tell you what's so funny about this? Uh, Jonathan Hickman, first of all, who is the writer of the House of X Powers of Ten series was is a graphic designer. And so he created this whole language, the whole like sort of Krakoan language that exists throughout the books and that you can read. But what it reminded me of when I first saw it was in the old days at Disneyland in California, because I'm originally from California, when they opened the Indiana Jones ride when I was but a wee babe we all waited for like four hours in line for the Indiana Jones ride. And what they did to make that palatable was they gave out little translator cards so you could translate all of the hieroglyphics, which turned out to be, I think, advertising copy, but that's here nor yeah. there. But it, it reminds <laughs> me of that because I have the same like sort of tickled feeling of like, oh, I got to find out what the secret meaning is, man. I love that stuff. Love also, that stuff. Uh, potentially the best ride at Disneyland in the 90s. Favorite, all right, so favorite Disneyland ride. For me, Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. That's my favorite ride in all the parks, I think. I think it's just like the perfect level of, ah, for me and my like, I don't do roller coaster. Yeah, Ryan doesn't like actual rides. <laughs> um, watching you on Mission Breakout is one of my favorite things that's ever happened. Never again. That is a, a big drop ride and Ryan screams. Yeah, it's a... Uh, <laughs> I get freaked out on those kinds of rides. But yeah, Big Thunder Mountain Railroad for me. What's your favorite? Of all time is probably Indiana Jones. Yeah. I mean, when I was a wee little one, I loved the Peter Pan ride because I loved that I got to see mermaids. That was high up there as well. <laughs> but anyways, there's more to talk about, not just our favorite uh, <laughs> Disneyland attractions. Oh, this has been really fun. Have you seen this on social, Ryan? There's the Marvel missions that have been assigned. This past week, it was to create a Captain America shield with all of the safe household items you have and post it by Wednesday. So if you want to go back and look at some of the cool stuff that people have put together, the hashtag is Marvel Mission or Marvel at Home. And you can see all the cool DIY Captain America shields. Did you make one yet? No. So I saw yours and I was like, oh, that's fun. And I looked at the baby and I was like, hmm, what if I take my Captain America shield t-shirt and drape it over the baby and hold her in front of me? And I was like, <laughs> oh, no, using the baby as a shield is a terrible <laughs> idea. Uh, so I didn't post anything. I like the idea of it. Yep. Um, but yeah, the implications are problematic. 100%. Um <laughs> You guys should look out for more Marvel missions on social media because they're really delightful. Somebody also dressed up as all of the Avengers. Like the first thing they did was like just them with like an orange t-shirt on their head having like Black Widow hair Amazing. and like holding a hammer. It's so funny. I was just so tickled by it. I love that stuff. Also on, on Twitter this week, I saw that James Gunn, he put up a Spotify playlist featuring some of the songs that he has used for his Marvel Studios Guardians of the Galaxy films, but also some um, some ones he may use. He said, quote, part of the master list of Meredith Quill's favorite songs I considered for the soundtracks of Guardians of the Galaxy volumes one and two. I'm not promising I won't use these in future films, but we could all use some joyousness during our time in quarantine. And he put up a Spotify playlist, which everybody can listen to. We also have the link on marvel.com if you need to, to find it a little bit easier that way as well. Oh man, I have to say, James Gunn has 
phenomenal music taste. And I feel like every single one of those songs is like a low-key banger that I just feel like, oh, man, such good feel-good music, you know? So I'm going to go listen to that as I clean my home. (laughs) I'm bringing it up right now because I'm curious, like, what is... Oh, the tracks? Yeah, what are some of the tracks on it? Uh, He's got a little bit of Nick Lowe. Cruel Will Be Kind, which is not our Nick Lowe, but is the other lesser Nick Lowe. It's also pretty great, but he's not Marvel's Nick Lowe. Uh, there's some Hall and Oates in here, a little Bowie, which is great, Lou Reed, yeah. Barry White, Big Star, which is awesome, Parliament. Yeah. All right. This this is a really solid um, playlist, which I think is, is good for everybody. Ryan approved. But there have been a lot more videos going down on Marvel.com and on Marvel social media this week. I've been really enjoying all of our How to Draw lives. Yeah, and this week we had Marcus Toe, who is, you know, artist on a number of books. Um, He's been on Excalibur. He's done some champions work. He did a How to Draw Cyclops, which is, I mean, depending on your take on Cyclops, is either awesome or like a cool um, observation. I would like to learn to draw Cyclops so that I can draw him and then put a big circle around him and then a line through the middle to be like, no thanks, Clops. (laughs) 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 Sorry, Cyclops fans. I get it. Like, I understand. But like, Cyclops is just that guy from high school who you're like, are you going to be cool after high school? Probably not. You peaked (laughs) when you joined that football team. And by the football team, I mean the X-Men. <laughs> Lorraine, did you see James Marsden on social? Uh, I think it, he was chatting with Ben Schwartz. Might have been Ben Schwartz. And uh, he had his like red sunglasses on, his like Cyclops glasses. It was, what? Yeah, it was pretty good. It was pretty good. I'll Big give fan him of one. him. Like him a lot more than Cyclops. Actually, I like his, port- I like his portrayal of Cyclops. Also, you're ki- he's more understandable. Yeah, he's got a little bit more meat on them bones. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, also, Joe Q did another wonderful live stream, this time with Kevin Smith. I watch, what a great get. Kevin Smith is so delightful, uh, talking comic history and uh, Kevin's work in comics. I mean, those two guys have so much to say about the comic book industry over the last 30 or so years. So um, what a what a great chance to hear some chit-chat. Yeah, you know, executive vice president and creative director Joe Casada, of course, like legendary comic book creator and former Marvel Comics editor in chief. Their work together on Daredevil was one of those books that kind of reinvigorated my love for comics when I was in my late teens. So I, I definitely appreciate that. And of course, you know, like Joe was in, I think he was in Chasing Amy. Um, was they have, he they really? I, th- I want to say yes. There's a comic convention scene and there's a whole bunch of actual comic book creators in that scene. I think it's in Chasing Amy where Joe shows up in like the background somewhere. Joe and, and Jimmy Pomiati. I've been thinking about getting the new Jane and Silent Bob reboot movie. Checking that out because I just like, you know, the whole Viewisk universe is, is a lot of fun and it's been years since I watched them. Oh, man, that takes me back to high school real hard. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Lorraine, did you see the new Captain Marvel figure from Hot Toys? I did not, but I'm about to click on this link and find out what it is because I had not heard about it. Yeah. So if if anybody doesn't know, Hot Toys, um, they make these incredibly detailed, like lifelike figures <gasps> based on. Yeah, that's an actual gasp. Uh, oh this is. I, yeah. Ryan, see. I'm going to tell you the truth. I saw this come through and I didn't click on it because I was like, I don't want to click on it because then I'm going to have to buy it. And dang it. Now I have to buy it. It's so beautiful. Yeah, it's amazing. It's, you know, Captain Marvel from the end of Marvel Studios Avengers Endgame. She's got the gauntlet with her. She's like super poseable. It's it's really amazing. These are six scale figures. So, you know, they are one sixth the scale of the, uh, in this case, the actress. They come with um, lots of accessories and usually like replacement pieces and all these little things. I have a bunch of hot toys in storage right now just because tiny baby, we're trying to think about how do we stop the baby from destroying expensive toys and and collectible stuff. So Well, um, and also tiny, tiny pieces. (laughs) But I will say these hot toys figures are so cool because the likenesses are so 
just like incredibly immaculately spot on. A lot of times they'll use actual scans of uh, the actors' faces. So they look really, really true to the film when they do film accurate statues. And they're so fun because you can pose them and you can make your own little diorama of scenes or you can make them all kiss, which is what I would do. Smooch, 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 smooch. Uh, Lorraine, that was some, some merchandise, but we also had a bunch of things happening in games this week. Fortnite got some new characters uh, in the game. There's Cable, there's uh, Psylocke, there's Domino. It's Mutant Extravaganza, as they would say on Drag Race. <laughs> Yep, all of that. Uh, we talked about that a little bit at the end of last week, but uh, the, the still, they're they're kind of hot and fresh, and everybody's excited about them. Yeah, I mean, we're we're having Deadpoolness in Fortnite, so we might as well get the whole X Force up in there. And of course, we have a ton of games going on at any given time. We have new characters releasing in Marvel Strike Force, where you get Corvus Glaive in Marvel Puzzle Quest and Marvel Future Fight, both of them getting Yelena and the Red Guardian, which are, of course, tied into the Marvel Studios Black Widow movie. Uh, so there's some content coming around, um, you know, wherever you want your Marvel, whether it's one of our mobile games or it's a console game, there's something for you to play pretty much all the time. Yeah, there's so much cool, fun stuff to do. Um, also, Ryan, what's going on on the pull list? Are you giving us some some more cool stuff to read? Yeah, so this week was really fun. The newest episode of the Marvel's Pull List podcast is about maybe the coolest Black Widow spy story you've probably never read. It's um, from, Ooh. yeah, it's from four issues of Marvel Fanfare, issues 10 through 13. It's written by Ralph Macchio. It's art by George freaking Perez, one of the greatest artists of all time. So we dig into those four issues. And if you like James Bond stories, this is such a great like four-parter. It's got uh, Melina is in it. It's got Alexi. It's got a lot of ties to some really cool stuff uh, in Black Widow's history. It's got a bunch of wild assassin characters that are Amazing designs. You could just spend hours just looking at the art. I don't remember this story just from the issue numbers. Where does that story start? Like, what's the little tiny one-line premise of it? Black Widow is brought in by S.H.I.E.L.D. to find basically her like father figure in Russia, and she gets embroiled in um, KGB wildness, which explodes into super spy wildness. Okay, I do know this story. <laughs> it's been collected probably like four or five years ago, but it's, you know, because it's not a, a specific Black Widow series, it's four issues mm -hmm. of Marvel fanfare. It sort of falls under the, a lot of people's radars. And, you know, I dig into this a lot in the podcast, so I, you know, I won't go too far into it here, but this is the one of the only stories George Perez did for Marvel in like a 10 year span. It's the last thing he does for us before the infinity gauntlet, um, in 1991. So it's really interesting to see what he was doing there. Um, it's, it's really quite wonderful. Before we continue, we wanted to share a special message about digital comics in the mega library that we call Marvel Unlimited. Marvel Unlimited is your all-access pass to over 27,000 Marvel comics, all available at your fingertips in the Marvel Unlimited app or on your desktop browser. As a listener of this show, you can get 50% off your first month of Marvel Unlimited. Sign up online at marvel.com slash listen and enter the promo code Marvelites. M-A-R-V-E-L-I-T-E-S. Marvelites. And, you know, if you're going to get into Marvel Unlimited, there are tons of comics by our guest for this episode, Mr. Chris Claremont, one of... I don't I, I don't even know where you put him on the Mount Rushmore of X-Men creators. Like <laughs> I mean, he's like the George Washington almost. Oh, but see that's my brain him and starts Stan going. Are like, well, Jack as well. Come on, come on, come on. You got And Jack Stan, and Jack. But like and then you start thinking of like, oh, well and how does he pair up because yeah, they started the X-Men, but Chris was there, but then you also have to think about Len Wein and Dave Cockrum. I can't get into this oh, discussion yeah. right no, now. That's such a great oh my point. Gosh. Um, but you know what? The great thing is, is it's not a competition. I think you know Chris Claremont, writer of God Loves, Man Kills, The Phoenix Saga, 
I mean, so many of those stories I think are extremely iconic, especially for uh, folks of our generation and, and even a little bit older. Like those were just huge, huge hits in our time. It's just impossible to ignore the amazing contribution he's made, not only as a writer, but also as an editor, as a staff member, as a part of the bullpen. Yeah, we, we you know, we talked to him about that, about like getting into Marvel, his career, like getting into being a writer and and being part of the machine that is Marvel. I would say listen to this interview. And if you are not an X-Men fan, I think now is kind of the perfect time to just say, OK, I'm going to give the X-Men a shot. Sign up for Marvel Unlimited. Yeah. Get in there. Even if you read an issue a day or two issues a day, you I think you'll start to get hooked. I would say if you want to like go in there, start with Giant Size X-Men number one mm. and then go into X-Men number 94. It's Uncanny X-Men number 94 is when that like all new, all different team starts. I think it'll it'll sway you. If you do this, let us know. I would love to hear if you are starting an X-Men read. Also, if you're somebody who gets overwhelmed by continuity, this is sort of pre the 90s crossover madness of the X-Men. But this is like a nice, simpler time to get into those stories. So do it. Also, I say embrace the continuity madness. Just let it wash over you. Dive in. <laughs> Ride the wave. Into the deep end. Because that's, that's, I think, part of the fun of reading comics is like discovering things. Like you read a, a story with a character and you're like, who is that character? Because we have something like Marvel Unlimited or you have the internet at your fingertips, you can do those deep dives and learn a lot and get excited about new characters. But Ryan, get into this. Yeah. You start with these comics with the sort of new wave of giant sized folks onward. You are slowly immersed in the world. And then as crossovers happen, you organically come into them and can follow those lines very easily. So it's a win-win. Yeah, 100%. It's like you start in at the shallow end, you're dipping your toe in, you're walking in, you're walking mm -hmm. in. Before you know it, you're in the deep end, you've peed in the pool already, and everyone's just like, well, we're here. What are you going to do? But then by the time you realize you're in the deep end, you realize it's an ocean. Dun, dun, dun. This metaphor really went pretty far, uh, but let's get, <laughs> get us back on track. Here's our interview with Chris Claremont. Chris, thanks so much for joining us on the show. My pleasure. So the thing we always like to start with is asking, what is your Marvel origin story in the sense of, <laughs> of like the characters, the stories? What was it for you that first got you connected? I was bitten by a radioactive pen. <laughs> <laughs> well, back in the day, my university, Bard College, would shut down from essentially Christmas until the beginning of March for what they called field period where the students were expected to go out and get a job in a practicum related ideally to their major subject. Uh, at the time, my co-majors were political theory and acting. But January of 1969, for someone who went to a, an extremely leftist college that was technically number two on the DEA hit parade, meant not much chance of getting anything in politics since Nixon had just been elected and was about to be inaugurated for the first administration. And after 1968, I really wasn't that thrilled with getting anything to do with politics. And New York theater in, in January of any year is not that conducive to people looking for work. So my parents had a friend named Al Jaffe who worked for Mad Magazine, and I thought, well, perhaps I could get a job with Mad. <laughs> and Al apparently got in touch with my parents and said, there's no way, no how I'm going to recommend Chris for a job at Mad because we work at Bill Gates' house. Do you have any idea what we do there? You will never speak to me again. And I thought, well, that would have been cool, not the not speaking part, but what are they doing there? <laughs> so he asked instead, does Chris have any interests in comic books? And I said, sure, I like comic books. He'll call a friend. And the next thing I know, the phone rings, and I pick it up, and this voice, the other, hey there, true believer, this is Stan Lee. <laughs> well, you have to understand, young man, we're a very, very poor company. We have enough trouble paying our employees. What we, you know, our paid employees, we, we can't afford any new, you know, 
basically he was finding the nice way to say, not a chance in hell. I said, well, sir, I'm doing this for academic credit, so technically we're not allowed to ask for wages. You're hired! (laughs) (laughs) So next thing I knew, I was working at Marvel as a gopher, which is what they called interns in those days. Sure. Backing up a little bit, you said you you were had an interest in comics. Were you reading as a kid? Were you reading? Because from what I've read, in the 60s, comics were cool. Like colleges, uh, kids were reading comics, and it was like a more popular thing. Uh, well, see, I, I'm a marginally legal immigrant. Mm-hmm. So I grew up basically reading British comics. Um, my, my grandmother got me a subscription to a, a comic, a weekly magazine, well, newspaper called Eagle. So I grew up reading Dan Dare, Sky Pilot of the Spaceways, which was brilliant. But when I got to, when we settled in New York, most American comics were awful. Marvel was okay, but eh, until I guess my junior year of high school, perhaps, or my senior year, when I was walking home and and, uh, stopped by the newsagent, and on their rack was FF48, which was the Watcher and the Silver Surfer. And I thought, this looks cool. So I started flipping through it, and I thought, holy cow, this looks great. So I bought that, and then I bought 49, and then I bought 50, and it was like, wow. And that led me to Stan and Jack on Thor, and that led me to Roy and John Buscema, Roy Thomas and John Buscema on The Avengers. And I thought, this is cool. And that led me to Doctor Strange and that, you know, going around the block. So, yeah, I was interested in it. It was fun. So you were reading all of these phenomenal classic comics, and then you started at Marvel. What was it like when you started working in the office? You have to understand, Marvel was a much, much more modest operation than it is today. I mean, imagine a space maybe twice, three times the size of this room. That was it. By the windows overlooking the street, you had the only office with a door. That was Stan's. The, you had a, a larger space next to it, which was Roy Thomas and Marvel's, I guess, CEO, CFO. Then you had the bullpen, which was John Romita Sr., Herb Trimpey, Marie Severin, and Frank Giacoya. Then you had the stat space, because we, used, we did photostats and, and the like then. For our listeners, the, the stat would be to replicate images for the different panels. If, they, if a panel had a similar image, but changing certain things. Yeah. And then there was the receptionist desk, which is a cubicle, which is where I worked. And then there was the sort of reception area, which had a couch. And that was it. Uh, there were maybe a dozen people working in the office. How long were you in the position of gopher for Marvel back then? Two months, because the spring term began in March. And what semester of school was that for you? I was a freshman. Okay. I was just getting started. So then how long was it before you came back for a more full-time position? Five years. While I was there, I, did, I got my first taste of freelance writing. Uh, so I did some fill-in pages for a Sergeant Fury annual, um, Nazis I Have Known and Killed, Women I Have Known and Loved, Don Heck would do five or six images, and I would fill in commentary as if Nick was telling the story. But here's an example of what, what would happen. While I was there, because a lot of it was just sitting around waiting for something to happen, I would read through everything because, oh my God, all of Marvel Comics right there in the, in the bound volumes. So I'm flipping through them and you know waiting for the, the latest batch of of proofreading to come through so I could, you know, just do the spelling corrections. And I'm reading the back issues, and then I'm proofreading Sergeant Fury. And the issue that I have is Nick Fury goes back to Brooklyn on leave to hook up again with his mom and his younger brother, who will grow up in Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., to become Scorpio. Except... I had just read the story that Stan and Jack did during the first year of Sergeant Fury where he's on trial. He's getting court-martialed. And the priest gets up and says, well, you've got to understand, sir, Nick Fury's an orphan on the Lower East Side. I thought, huh, 
So I go to Roy and I say, Roy Thomas, and I say, we have a problem. And he says, what? Well, here's Nick going back to Brooklyn to meet with his family, except Stan and Jack established years ago that he was an orphan. And Roy looks at it and says, huh, okay, call Stan. What? Call Stan, tell him. What? Call Stan and tell him. Okay, you know, call him up. Hey there, true believer, what's up? <laughs> well, Stan, yada, 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 blah, blah, blah. Okay, fix it. Clack. <laughs> Roy says, what do you say? He said, fix it. Okay, fix it. What? Chris, you found it, you fix it, go. And I thought, oh, I don't know how to do this. So I went back to my table and looked down, and I looked, and I looked, and I looked, and, and about 30 seconds, oh, duh, his adopted family in Brooklyn. That's all you need, which actually worked better for Scorpio because that meant they weren't blood relations, and why the hatred between them, or from Scorpio's standpoint, was so much more justifiable because this interloper comes into the family and suddenly I, the natural son, get shoved out of the way. Screw you. I'm going to, you know, come back and have my revenge. At which point I thought, huh, I can do this. So I, I just began throwing ideas. And then in, I guess, February, Roy and Neil were coming to the end of the Sentinel saga, Roy Thomas, Neil Adams. And they were trying to figure out, now that the Sentinels had beaten the living daylights out of the X-Men time and time again, how do the X-Men defeat them? And I thought, well, I don't know, but like a liberal arts major is going to know this, but I could bluff. Scientists theorize that all mutation on Earth comes as a result of solar radiation. So maybe if you're going to eliminate mutants, you've got to find a way to deal with the sun. And Roy's going, huh? Next thing we know, Neil's drawn a full-page splash of the sun so brilliantly that the sun doesn't even fit in the panel. And the page, it's, you just you know, see part of the orb with little with the panel edges at the, at the, in the corners with the sentinels zooming into it, which is one of the more brilliant visualizations of that era and since, which goes to show why Neil Adams is Neil Adams. But that was mine. And, you know, my thought was, I can do this. So I kept on going. I started writing more and more. I sold my first prose story. And a couple of years later, Roy was, had decided he wanted to bring back the Sentinels, and I pitched him an idea, which he used, and I actually got credit for it. And I actually got 20 bucks, which was serious money in those days. So I started sending out concept ideas to Marvel and to DC, and eventually uh, Marvel bought a couple, and the rest, as they say, is history. When you come back, you are assistant editor on titles, or uh, when I came back, I was no, I was an editorial assistant on the black and white magazines, and the, for me, it was a good gig because I was hired for two and a half days a week, which was great because then I could go to auditions because at that point I was still determined to become an actor, and I figured I'd be there, I'd stick around for three, four months, and then go off and do summer stock, and I'd have some money in the bank, so. I kept pitching ideas, but as, as assistant editor, the idea was I would proofread. I would do whatever the editor wanted to, to tell me to do. The joke, of course, was as I was going back to school, they gave me all of the submissions that I hadn't had gotten to yet to answer, you know, just finish it off. This, this is, these are your leftovers. Among them was a submission from someone named Tony Isabella pitching an idea, and I, I wrote him a very nice rejection note saying, we appreciate your work. It was very cool. Uh, not quite what we need, thank you. Uh, keep trying, true believer, and we'll, you know. So when I come back and get hired, guess who my boss is? <laughs> Tony Isabella, who still had the letter I sent back. And so my little ID tag on the, on the desk was, Chris Claremont, who f rejected my first submission <laughs> to Marvel. I was like, huh. So, uh, yeah, we, we did... We worked on the black and white magazines, um, Monsters of the Movies, Dracula Lives, Tomb of Dracula. And I would do I'd freelance articles. I'd freelance stories. I finally pitched a couple of short stories, one of which got penciled but never got inked. It's still out there somewhere. And then uh, Marv Wolfman hired me, gave me a gig doing uh, Giant Size Dracula, number two, I believe. 
at which he uttered the immortal words, okay, structure it out, plot it for Neil Adams. I'm going, holy cow, Marv, you mean this is going to be drawn by Neil Adams? What are you, an idiot? No. We would give a young punk like you a chance to work with Neil Adams? The, the, the queue is already a mile long for people who, who, want, who are committed to working with Neil. No, but plot it as if it's going to Neil, <laughs> which is actually the smartest thing an editor can say because when you look at it as if it's going to the best artist in modern comics, it changes the pattern of your thinking. You try to go beyond cliche. You try to, go, you try to find a visual synergy in your own brain which would trigger the imagery in Neil's brain and then hopefully who it goes to, which I think it might have been Don Heck, do the same for him. It doesn't always come out the way you imagine it, but that's, that's the foundation one builds on. So that was it. Stayed there for five or six months, got bumped up to being Len Wein, who was at that, by that point the editor, the editor-in-chief. I became his associate editor. So basically the two of us ran Marvel for a year. Stan asked three things of his freelancers or of his, of his creators. Get the work in on time. Do great work. Don't be a pain in my ass. Any two out of three, would you could keep your job. But from Stan's perspective, he had too much responsibility just keeping the company alive. He didn't have time to deal with editing. If I'm giving you the book, I count on you to write it well. If you don't write it well and the sales suffer, I'll fire you and get someone else. If you do well, Mazel Tov will keep going. So, okay, Stan's giving me a book. My job is to get it in on time. One of the earliest things that happened when I was on staff, Roy walks into the bullpen at, at 5.15, and he says, I have this issue. He holds up 17 pages of art. I think Jerry Conway couldn't write the script so basically said I need this done by tomorrow morning who wants it and I got my hand up first so it's five in the evening I have 17 pages of art I have Jerry's liner notes which are sparse I have to get it turned in by half past eight the next morning Roy's attitude is you get it in and it's halfway's decent you get another shot you, you blow the deadline then that's it. You don't get called again. It's you do it or you're out. And I did it. And that got me a shot at another and another and another. But it's a, it was a very primal alpha beta reality. You do the job, you get another shot. You don't do the job, we'll find someone else. Because A, there's a fairly decent sized queue. And B, this is a business. You have to do the job. So you mentioned your collaboration with Len Wein. How did Giant Size X-Men come about and your involvement? Well, the X-Men, the irony was that when Roy and Neil were doing the book, the book started in January of 69. We didn't get the sales reports on the first batch of issues until October, November, by which time the book had been canceled and Neil had gone back to DC Comics. So Marvel had no idea that it was a success until it was too late. But it was a success. So instead of simply canceling it, the decision was made, we'll just go back and do reprints and guest star them in other titles until we make up our mind what to do next. So it bounced back and forth and up and down. And finally, Stan and Roy, we'll try it again. But the, this time we'll throw in a different milieu. We won't just bring back the same cast and do it over and over and over. Let's, because Stan, we want to try and expand Marvel overseas. So let's make it a more international cast. So Stan gave it to Roy. Roy and Len talked it over. Then Roy decided he'd had enough being editor-in-chief. Len took over that. And Len and Dave Cockrum started designing. Now, Dave Cockrum, for those of you who don't know, was one of the most brilliant character designers and storytellers of that era. He, I loved his work when he was doing the Legion of Superhero, Superheroes over at DC. So he came over to Marvel and redesigned the X-Men. Not just the X-Men, but 
in bringing in new characters, Colossus, Nightcrawler. Aurora turned out to be a synergy of two characters he, that he'd pitched to DC that they weren't interested in. Wolverine was a character that Len had created with John Romita and Herb Trimpey that had debuted in The Hulk, but he liked him and he brought him over as well. So Len had his office, the editor-in-chief office, which had a door, which he foolishly never closed all the way. <laughs> and my, my desk was right outside his door. So I'm sitting there listening and watching. And I would occasionally take Dave's pages and Xerox them and bring them back when they asked for Xeroxes because it was too much fun to look at the art and go, wow, <laughs> these are brilliant. But they get to the end of the story and it's like, how the hell do we beat Krakoa, the living island? So I sat there and said, well, you've got 14 X-Men of phenomenal power. All an island is is basically a mountain that sticks its head up above the water. Yeah. So why not just cut the top off the mountain and let the revolution of the earth around the sun and Mother Nature do what happens next? So basically that's what happened. We cut off the head of the mountain and Krakoa suddenly, you know, oddly enough, even living islands don't float. They cannot, you know, move through, through the, the atmosphere, skydive, in any way, shape, manner, or form. He's just a lot of dirt. And that was that. It's simple. It looks cool. And end of story. So I guess the same way I contributed to Roy and Neil's story, I contributed to Len and Dave's story. And at that time, Giant Size was a quarterly. So... Len, for whatever reason, decided, well, he'd plotted out and Dave had started drawing Giant Size 2, decided he'd had enough of being editor-in-chief. But his ability would only allow him four monthly titles. X-Men was the fifth title, even as a quarterly. And it got worse when Marvel decided quarterlies were a dumb idea. We're going to make it a standard bi-monthly. So... That was the weak link in his chain, and he just, you know, well, I've got to give it up. He hadn't quite gotten the words out of his mouth before. Metaphorically, I tackled him, threw him to the floor, and said, I want this book. He thought, jeez, get off of me. Yeah, okay, you can have it. Because I wanted the, They were cool characters. Dave's designs were brilliant. The chance of working with Dave Cochran was like a gift from heaven. And unlike every other book Marvel was publishing at the time, it was brand new. So all we knew about the, the five characters was they, they'd been created. We knew their origins. We knew their abilities. We knew nothing else. So from a writer's perspective, it was a gift from God. And so I ran with it. Did Len or Dave have any ideas of where they were going to go with it? Or it was just clean slate? That's so fun. I mean, the interesting thing was that Conceptually speaking, Len had specific opinions. Uh, for example, in his conception, Wolverine was basically an adolescent, and the claws were part of his gloves. The only mutant power he had was his healing factor. Except that looking at Dave's art for Giant Size 1, and actually going back and looking at Herb's art from the Wendigo story where Wolverine was introduced, he did not look young. And he's established as a captain in the Canadian Armed Forces. Well, sorry, my father had been a surgeon in the RAF. My mother had been in the RAF. My uncle had been in the RAF. My father had been in the U.S. Army. I knew what officers looked like. They were not teenagers. And again, Dave was drawing him as older, so we went with that. And then the other thing was the problem with having the claws in the glove well, the same problem, actually, that Tony Stark faces with the armor. Anyone can wear the armor, and often did. So while we're working on the book, Dave walks in one day with a sketch, hand held in a fist, and the claw comes out of the hand. And I remember looking at him going, oh, that's disgusting. That's really cool. Let's do it. <laughs> because, it, again, with the healing factor, it suddenly becomes really practical. He slashes his hand open every time the claws come out, but it heals. And when the claws go back, it heals properly. But the next point led me to one of the foundation lines of, of Logan's character, which 
sounded really cool when when Hugh Jackman says it to Anna Paquin. Well, she starts it, does it hurt? And he looks at her, and he looks at his hand, and he looks out the front of the car, or the truck, and he looks back at his hand, and he looks at hers every time. And I remember seeing that in the film and jumping up at the, at the premiere and jumping out of my seat and saying, yes! <laughs> because that's the one thing you cannot convey in comics. But with just a look and the way he replied, and because he's one of the best actors, period, Hugh Jackman nailed it. I mean, I nailed it, I thought, in the comics, but this made it real. Which is why, for, in terms of Wolverine, we tried as much as possible, or I tried as much as possible over the years, the claws don't come out often. Why? Because it effing hurts. But when they come out, he kills people. And that's been the source of a, a whole bunch of scenes with him and Aurora where his instinctive response and her instinctive response to that response lead to a really interesting confrontation. But the next step is character growth. And when we actually get him hurt, the idea was it will mean something because if he's hurt enough so that it takes a bunch of issues to heal, that his healing factor can't just do it instantaneously, wow. So that's how the characters evolved over the years. But they evolved from that starting point, from Dave and I just bouncing ideas back and forth. Gene leaves the book in 94, but we both knew we wanted her back. We just had to come up with a concept because Marvel Girl, she was 22. She's not a girl anymore. So what would make her unique? Because everyone at Marvel, Invisible Girl, they're all girls. Sue has a kid at that point. They were, she was married. I mean, how can she be Invisible Girl? There's got to be a better way of describing her that is not gender derogative. So it's, it, it was an evo- I had my position. It was different from 60s writing concept position where boys were boys, boys were men, girls were girls, and they were always there to be rescued. And they were always far more interested, even the Wasp, who I wrote that way a number of times because it wasn't my character, She's really good with clothes. She knows fashion. The world, not so much. I was coming at it from my background, which is when my mom was my age then, when she was in her 20s, she just had a fight with, well, no, her boyfriend had stood her up and she was walking down the street and she was really pissed. And then she sees a recruiting poster for the RAF and it's the war, but it's a spitfire just roaring up through the sky. And she thought, I would like to fly that plane. And oddly enough, she was the right height and the right dexterity. She w- and she walked in and enlisted, and then the recruiter told her that women weren't allowed to fly planes. But because she was in university, she could run a radar station on the South Coast. So the way I describe it, she, she was the welcome wagon for day tourists from France. But 20 years later, in the United States, she got her pilot's license and flew for another 50-odd years. I mean, she finally stopped 10 years ago when she was 92. That's incredible. That's, awesome. that's amazing. But that's the thing. It's like in another dimension, perhaps, she was in the RAF. But that's the whole point. Why draw this 1960s distinction between what men can do and what women can do? So we eventually came up with Phoenix and you know where that led. But that, you know, if you look at the X-Men, Aurora is just as badass a leader as Scott, with or without her powers. You find a way to put the best person in charge and leave gender outside the equation. Well, it's so interesting, too, because rereading God Loves, Man Kills, you sort of immediately remove all of the people that I think of as the leaders of the X-Men, we have no Xavier, we have no Aurora, we have no Scott Summers, they're all out of the way. And then we have 
Kitty and Ilyana. Little yeah. Kitty and Magic just trying to, to do their best. Who well, she I, wasn't Magic then. She was just Ilyana. That's right. They like to call her Klaus's sister a lot also. His baby sister. Yeah, his baby sister. But it's yeah. also, but no, the whole point, the key with God Loves was from the very beginning when Weezy and I started putting it together, we wanted it to be unique. We did not want it to be a story, even though it used the same characters and was vaguely set in the same continuity. This was not meant to be integrated with the standard run of X-Men. The way I like to describe it is if you only have one X-Men to read, if you want to give away one copy of the series to someone who will never, who's never read it before and will never read it again, this is the one. It gives you everything you need to know about the conflict, the, the reality, the characters, the coolness. This is it. It's a novel in and of itself and was never meant to be integrated into the standard continuity because neither Brent nor Wheezy nor I wanted it to be lost in the never-ending shuffle of stuff. And to make the point right from the start, we have two black kids running for their lives, and they don't make it. And the brother is killed, and his little sister is looking up at uh, the purifier who's holding a forty-five on her and said, why are you doing this? Because you're evil. Boom. And the Magneto comes along, and they're strung up as black children and, uh, and adults were strung up far too often, even then. And that's what sets it in motion. For want of anything better to do, I went out and, God forgive me, read the Bible front to back and then watched Sunday morning evangelical TV. I wanted to know where this came from because the words are fairly clear and simple. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Do unto others. And yet, look at what happens as a result. And that's why the key to me was you can read this and look at Stryker and say he believes he's right. He is a man of God. He does not consider himself a monster. And yet, as you move further through the book, he becomes a monster. Why? Because to him, the end result is all that matters. So that even when his chief agent is revealed in in the final confrontation, he turns on Charlie and, and the mutant zap goes out and suddenly her eyes start bleeding. She has the gene. And from Stryker's perspective, if it turns out that 99.999% of the human race are technically mutants and they must die or they will die as a result, for him that's an acceptable sacrifice. And then he looks at Kurt Wagner who is actually the most truly Christian member of the X-Men and always has been, and says, you dare call that human? And Kitty says, yes. To me, that, that was what it's all about. You can read, the idea was you can read this book and see both sides of the equation and understand why Stryker does what he does, understand why the X-Men do what they do, understand what Mag why Magneto does what he does, and then you have to make your own choice. Heartbreakingly, it's more relevant today than it yeah. was 40 years ago. The one element that for me back in 1974 mm. made the X-Men unique and valuable to the comics community, what made it different from every other series at DC, at Marvel, is they were clandestine. Why were they clandestine? Because of the, the mantra bound up in the opening description. Mutants are feared and hated by the general population for no other reason than they were born different. Spider-Man can get away with it because he was bitten by a spider. The FF went into outer space and got irradiated. Tony Stark built something cool. But with the X-Men, it's in the genes. And for most people, that makes them scary. I did a story in New Mutants, which is the only time I ever got a fan letter from Paul Levitz, who at the time was publisher of DC Comics, where a kid comes to Salem Center. And his parents are, are working parents. They're out of the house all day. But he's in school. So he goes around trying to make friends. He's new in town. 
Who does he meet first? The kids and the new mutants. And they like him. He likes them. But he keeps talking like an a-hole. He keeps making anti-mutant jokes. Why? Because that was the way he bonded with his peer group back where he used to live. So he keeps putting his foot in his mouth. They give him one last chance. He puts a foot in his mouth. They say, F you and walk away. The punchline is the reason he's so vehemently an a-hole, he's a nice kid. He's also a mutant. And he's terrified of being outed. But the point here is the X-Men, the mutant community, live in anxiety because they're kids. And they're looking out the window and they're wondering when the mob is going to come and string them up. From my perspective as writer on the book, that was the way I could use the X-Men to speak to every, pretentious as it sounds, every disenfranchised community in modern society. The X-Men spoke to that level of fear and the hope that we could find because this is a country of ideals, of dreams, of hopes, of finding a way to overcome it and leading us all to a better community where you're judged by your actions. We're all stuck on the same planet. Let's find a way to live together and not be jackasses. Amen to that. Yeah, seriously, words <laughs> to live by. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks again to Chris Claremont coming on. Uh, and, and thank you all for listening to that. Uh, I think we have a fun one here. An easy question of the week is, what's your favorite Chris Claremont story? And I think, you know, of course, there's tons of X-Men to choose from. But when you start digging into more of his books, I mean, he has like Iron Fist stories. He's got a lot of cool Marvel team-up stories. There's plenty more that he did. And some may like may surprise you when you start looking at his other work. For sure. You guys tell us. You can tweet us your answers using the hashtag This Week in Marvel. You can email them to us at twimpodcast at marvel.com or you can message us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash This Week in Marvel. Also, go like it so you can be updated on our podcasts and what's happening. Yeah, give us them five stars on on the apps and stuff. I hear other podcasts say that. Oh, no, leave us a review. That's a thing people say. A good one. Be like, these are my friends. We hug. Yeah, I'll give you a shout out. (laughs) Speaking of which, I think it's time for some community, Ryan. Yeah, we got an email in here from Mr. Vincent King. He says, Ryan, Lorraine, (laughs) PP, crew. (laughs) It should be triple P, P, but... It should be either triple P or PV, because Persia's <laughs> last name is with a V. No anyway, shout out to Zachary, who's also there. Uh, so I'm going to amend that to say PPP and ZG and the rest of the crew. <laughs> I want to real quick email my response this time, along with images of my mother, who's one of the hundreds and thousands of workers in the medical staff who is working in some capacity with testing. She's a trooper, and I love her very much. Thank you guys so much, and please keep up Aww, the good work. Oh, that's so nice. We wish her well and and good health. And um, thank you so much for everything you're doing for all of us to keep us safe. Yeah, thank you, Vincent's mom. And next up, we have Colin J at Colin J, who says, my favorite Marvel book has to be Marvel Universe The End, because I got it signed by Jim Starlin at Galaxy Con Minneapolis. Uh, I want to give a shout out to Colin. Uh, Colin's nails matching the pink on the cover of Marvel Universe The End. It's so good. I love Colin because he always, um, he tweets us a lot and he always has great nails. Heck yeah. And I also wanted to give a shout out to TechLord, aka at Lex Pendragon, for letting us know he put up that YouTube slow stream Doctor Strange video that the Marvel New Media team made. And it helped his daughters not do their homeschooling work. And he was like, oops. Uh, (laughs) But they got so caught up in the little details of it. And I, I heard from even Jen Grunwald, who's one of our coworkers who works on the collections for us. She was really excited about it. She wants more of them. Do you guys want more? Let us know. We'll pass it along to the rest of the team. We would love to know uh, like actual tangible feedback. I know a lot of people watched it, but we always get excited when our, our Trimomaniacs get excited for stuff. Um, that about wraps it up. This episode of This Week in Marvel was produced by Persia Verlin, Zachary Goldberg, Lorraine Sink, and Ryan Panagos. Our audio development manager is Brad Barton. And Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And special thanks to the Phoenix Force. Have you been reading the news? Do you welcome a cosmic rage of fire and death and rebirth? Well, then why not try the Phoenix Force? Yes, 
the Phoenix Force. I would love a cup of Phoenix Force right about now. Oh, man. Let me tell you, it makes you feel alive. I'm Ryan. I'm Lorraine. This is Marvel. Your universe. Your universe.